but um, <clears throat> I didn't. Rocky, could, could you get me? We are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, after the sermon, and if you do not have the elements and you want to partake of the elements, we have them in a table uh, right outside, and I would encourage you to uh, get those uh, if you plan on participating with us this morning. Thank you so much. We are in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 6. Jonah chapter 1, 4 through 6. If you would, please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was on the, in the ship into the sea to lighten it uh, for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and laid down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now that as we look at this text and make some observations, that your spirit would convict us, that we would look at those areas where we need to change, and that uh, your spirit would also encourage us in those areas where we have been obedient. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Absalom was the king of David, and Absalom really, really wanted the throne. But he had done some things, and uh, he wasn't going to get the throne. So he, he thought he would position himself, and he positioned himself quite literally, uh, at the crossroads before getting to Jerusalem, and he intercepted those who wanted to go talk to the king. He, he would listen to their problems. He would listen to their plight. He would listen to their difficulty that uh, they were going through. And he would uh, tell them that the king, really the king didn't care for them. And that if they were going to find help, it was because he was going to help them. And in occasions he would help, but he would mostly just listen and, and tell them that uh, they, uh, they had uh, no compassion from the king. In a way, Absalom positioned himself to represent the king, to portray the king's uh, interest, but unfortunately, um, he, he wasn't really representing the king. David did care, and he was uh, about being involved with the people. It's unfortunately that uh, the people listened to him, and he got a gathering. He was supposed to represent his dad, but he, he failed to represent his dad. Now, here's a commission that we've seen in Jonah. And in this commission that God has commissioned Jonah to go to, he is supposed to be representing God, and they are supposed to learn about who God is because he is sending someone to represent him. But the, <laughs> the representative is not going to do a good job. He's doing a terrible job. He's taken off running in the opposite direction. Now, um, we think about that, and we can make a, a quick little application that uh, many will know about God because of how we represent him. 
Do we represent him as a compassionate, merciful God, or do we always represent him in a different light? Now, last, last week we looked at that uh, the, the chapter starts with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. And in a very real way, the, uh, it presents God right from the beginning. And we would want to define God a little bit and say, well, who is this God? And our temptation would maybe go to one of our favorite catechisms or maybe one of our favorite confessions of faith or maybe one of our favorite theologians and kind of go to the uh, theology proper section, look at God and see what definition they provide about God. And maybe that would be something that we would be tempted to do. But Jonah decides to narrate God's actions. So we understand God from Jonah by the actions he does, these, these actions. We, we start to see, and for example, he, he's a God that can speak. And in the fact that he can speak, it indicates a certain amount of intellect of being able to communicate and communicate rationally and, and being able to understand. It, it also shows that he, he is a judge of morality. He, he's seen the wickedness of Nineveh, it's come up before him, and he's able to distinguish between the actions that they're doing, even the intentions of their heart for why they're doing what they're doing. And he has been able to determine that they're wicked, wicked people. So he, he can judge morality, intentions, he can speak, he knows geography, and he can distinguish between those things which are small and those things which are great. He calls Nineveh a great city. Uh, to use a word like great, it means that he must have looked at other cities and saw them inferior, and that this one is a great city. The ability to distinguish between things. Uh, uh, someone who is very, very young, they look at things, and all things look the same. You know, they, they try to put the puzzles together and, and make no distinction between shapes. They just try to uh, jam the, the square peg into the round, and it just doesn't fit, and they get frustrated, you know. They get mad. Uh, God has the ability to distinguish between things. Now, as the narration keeps on going, as the story keeps on developing, we get a, a broader picture of who God is. But this is where we're at so far. It also uh, described man. And man's actions are described, uh, as far as Nineveh goes, uh, a wicked people. Men are, are wicked. And they do actions that maybe they think that God is not watching, but they, uh, they, they do these actions, and their actions come up before the Lord. The other thing that we see is that man has a lack of compassion. Uh, God, sends, God sends Jonah to go talk to them, to tell them, to compel them, to, to proclaim before them. Uh, but he doesn't want to go. We don't know yet. The, the narrator hasn't told us, told us why exactly he doesn't want to go yet. But we see that he has this lack of compassion. God has compassion for them. He wants to reveal his message. Jonah does not care to do that. And we, find, and we also see that man has a bent towards foolishness. Man has a bent towards foolishness. Uh, parents, uh, if you read the book of Proverbs, parents have the responsibility of driving foolishness away from, from their kid uh, because kids have a, a bent towards foolishness. But adults, men, have a bent towards foolishness. Where, where is he going to go from the presence of the Lord? Where? Where can he go? I mean, you read the psalmist, he says, if I, if I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. If I go to the, get, you know, fly up to the heavens, you're there. But he, he thinks he's going to go to Spain and somehow get away from the presence of the Lord. There's a bent towards foolishness in people. 
And that's what we've seen so far revealed. Now, we still haven't decided yet what type of narrative we're looking at here. We know it's a story. It's going to have different forms of uh, literature here, but uh, what type of story are we dealing with? Is it a comedy? A comedy is where the, the hero wins at the end. Who's the hero? Is the hero Nineveh? Well, I, we'll have to see how they end up at the end. Or is it Jonah? Is, is he the hero? Well, the, the hero's running from God. Or is the hero God in the narrative? If it's God, uh, it seems more like a tragedy. A tragedy is where the hero loses, loses something very valuable at the end. And so far as we've seen, Jonah's running from the presence of the Lord rather than going close to him. What, what type of narrative are we having here? Maybe it's a satire. Satire looks to, to expose a human vice or a folly to, to ridicule and, and, and to rebuke. We say God would, would never ridicule someone. Uh, he, he laughs. He laughs at the folly of the sinner. Uh, so I, I don't put it past him. Well, we, we don't know yet, and we'll have to continue looking at our narrative, but these are things as we're looking at this that we should be asking, who is the hero of the story? Well, what is going on here? And, and as we look at this, uh, we're going to look at some observations, and I've got a, a total of eight observations. Uh, usually I have uh, three points, but today we have eight. We should finish on time. You know, in, in concerts, people get all excited about an encore, but for some reason, in church services, not so much. I, I don't know what the deal is. But uh, these will be quick observations, and, um, and we'll apply these. Uh, as we look at these verses, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, th there's an unusual sentence structure. And it's unusual in the sense that uh, in English, we usually form sentences with a subject, a verb, and, and then the rest of the sentence. And, and that's how we, we speak, and that's how we write. If we do a variation of that, it kind of marks the sentence as being unusual, and maybe we can understand it. Uh, Yoda, Yoda speaks really weird. He changes the sentence structure, and uh, you're always caught trying to figure out what in the world he's talking about, right? Uh, when there is a change of sentence structure, it, it marks it in a certain way that makes us really pay attention. And, and here, the, the sentence structure is, is varied. And, and what it does is it puts, a, uh, puts the subject first. And the subject is the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind. Now, verse 3 ends with Joshua running from the presence of the Lord. And then it picks up verse 4 that the Lord, now, what, what is he going to do? Uh, Jonah is running from him. He's working hard to create a gap between him and the Lord. He, he's trying to move away. What do you do with somebody who is moving away from you? They, they decided to, to distance themselves from you. What do you do? What do you do in the case if you're the sovereign? And God has established himself as the sovereign in, in two different ways. He's established himself as the sovereign as in he's commanded Jonah to go. But he's also uh, put himself as the sovereign in the sense that um, he, he is sending an, a person to go and tell Nineveh that they've done wrong. Have you ever done that? You, you thought maybe uh, Venezuela has the wrong president, and so you decide to send somebody over there to tell them they've done wrong? Well, of course not. Why? 
They would say, who are you to come and tell us? But God has set himself up as a sovereign over Nineveh, that he can send somebody and say, hey, you've done wrong. You've done wickedness. What he does now is the Lord, he, he throws, he throws a great wind. And, and in throwing this great wind, this, that word hurled or flung, it, it's used in 1 Samuel 18, 11. You remember the, the scene where uh, David is there with Saul, Saul's the king, and for some reason he gets all upset, Saul does, and he grabs a spear and he flings it, throws it to, to David. The intent is to kill him. He misses David. It's the same verb being used here that they, uh, God has thrown this wind down onto the sea. He, he's thrown it. And it's a great, great wind. A great wind that's contrary to the purpose and the plan of Jonah. The city is a great city for, for God, uh, but it's not a, such a great city for Jonah. The wind is a great wind for the Lord, but it's not a great wind for Jonah. It disturbs what he's doing, and he throws it to the sea. Now, here's our first observation that we're going to look at. The first observation is this. The wind listens to God, but the prophet of God does not. That's our first observation. The wind listens to God, but the prophet of God does not. God has commissioned Jonah to go. Now, we know that this is metaphorical language. God is spirit. He has no arms to throw a wind. He has no vocal cords to speak. So this is metaphorical language for us to understand the things that are happening here. So just as he metaphorically speaks to, uh, to Jonah and Jonah hears and, and understands, he's also throwing this wind. The difference is that nature obeys its creator. But the prophet, the one who is supposed to be calling people to come back to God, to seek God, the, the, the prophet's main job is not to foretell future things. Sometimes they did that. But the prophet's job was to call people to God, to repent, to seek God. And the prophet doesn't obey. The wind listens to God, but the prophet does not. And that's an incredible thing to think about. Isaiah, uh, God makes the same observation in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, that uh, the, the farm animals know their, know their master. But you, O Israel, you do not. You don't know who, who, who's the Lord. There they are. They, <laughs> a, a dumb donkey knows who the master is. But Israel does not. And that's a kind of a sad thing as I think about in our own lives. Nature responds to God. It obeys. But us created in the image of God, do we, do we know? Do we understand? And I'm not talking about intellectual. I'm talking about through our actions. Do our actions demonstrate that he is sovereign? The wind listens, but the prophet does not. The second point is, it's a question, really. And the second one is, is a question. It says, uh, uh, were there no unrighteous in Israel that God sent Jonah to Nineveh? There's this really bizarre, really crazy idea out there. I mean, it's really crazy. And, and that idea is uh, we, we need to reach the people around our church first 
And then once we reach the people around our church, then we got to reach Houston. And then once we reach Houston, we've got to reach Austin. And, and, you know, try to go in proximity like that, like grow like that. It's a, it's a bizarre, bizarre, crazy idea that, that people have. And, and it comes through really sloppy exegesis, sloppy, sloppy exegesis, crazy thoughts. And then they go around declaring it and telling people about this stuff. In Jonah's ministry, was Israel totally righteous? Were they all God-fears? Is that the thing that happened, that they were all fearing the Lord? They were all seeking after God? And God was like, well, here I've got Jonah. Got him on salary. I've got to do something with him. I can't just have him sitting around doing nothing. Well, I guess I'll send him out to Nineveh, since, since all of Israel is serving me. Well, no. The context of Jonah's ministry is 2 Kings 14, 23 through 29. It was the reign of Jeroboam the second. He was wicked, wicked king. There was lots of ministry opportunity. Israel had divided Judah's in the south. Israel's up north. They, they are wicked, looking for idols, serving those idols. They're encouraging people not to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to, to sacrifice to the Lord. They're encouraging them to go to Samaria and, and, and worship idols. They established another temple up there. It was a wicked, wicked nation. And yet God sends his prophet to Nineveh. God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh, even though there was a lot of unrighteous elect Jews in Israel who were not fearing him. See, God cares about Houston, but he also cares about Western Sahara, which has 93% unevangelized, unreached. He cares about spring, but he also cares about the world. And the idea that we're going we're to focus here, and then as we start to grow, we'll keep on expanding, 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 is absurd. Because God cares about the world. He cares about here, and he cares about over there. A third observation. Jonah moves away from God. His life becomes, as Jonah moves away from God, his life becomes more unstable and dangerous. The, the, boat, the boat is presented in such a way as if it's able to think. And, and as it's on the, the water with this storm, uh, the ship was about to break up. It it's actually has this idea that what's communicating is that the ship is actually contemplating, this is my end. <laughs> uh, We've seen storms before, but, but I'm going to get crushed here. It, it, the way it's presented is as if the ship is actually thinking. Jonah is on dry ground when God speaks to him. And when he speaks to him, he gives him a plan and a purpose to do. But as Jonah decides to move away from what God has planned and purposed for him, his life becomes more unstable and becomes dangerous. In fact, he has to go down and pay, so he has to lose money, to take him to Spain. And as he's there, he's on the water. Who, who controls the water? Not Jonah. What, what does he want to do? He's on the water. There he is traveling. And as he travels and he moves further and further from God, more and more instability he has. Now, he can try as much as he wants to try to find stability. 
maybe maybe extend some things on, on the uh, on the ship to make it uh, you know stabilize. Maybe get some engineers to, to do some things. Uh, you're going to see that people are going to throw some cargo off, and, and many of us try to run from God, and, and our life becomes unstable. Uh, James talks about this. The double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. He's like he's like the 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 ocean. Like the waves that just move and down, up and down, swell up and go down. Always unstable. And as, as he moves away from God, he has a lack of purpose, a lack of stability in his life, and he's in danger. That's how, unfortunately, many of us are. Well, we try. I mean, we, <laughs> we work really hard to put stability in our life but it's a chaos inside. And the danger is there, but we're trying to protect ourselves. Man, we're trying to protect ourselves. But the danger is lurking. And what do we do? We keep on running and running from the Lord. Now, verse verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. So here you have these, these actions that they're doing. Three, three verbs that they're doing. The first is that they become afraid. They, they fear. It's a word that, um, that kind of uh, is used in, in reference to, to deity. Not always, but a lot of the times it is. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, God is calling out to Adam. Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit that he had pro- prohibited. He's calling out to them, and they're hiding. And he asks them why they were hiding. And he says, we heard your voice, and we were afraid. They had a sense that God was there, and they did not want to meet with God that day. They did not want to be in company with him. They were fearful. It's used in Genesis chapter 20, verse 8. You remember that uh, Abraham shows up and, and Abimelech sees Sarah. He really likes Sarah. He wants to take Sarah to be his wife. And that night, Abimelech has this vision. And this vision, uh, God tells him not to touch Sarah. And he gives Sarah back and he tells Abraham that, uh, that God scared him that night. He has this fear. It's the same word. It's used in Genesis 28, 17, where Jacob is there. He sees the stairway, and he calls the place Bethel. It's the house of God. He has this fear. It's used in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. The midwives, they're disobeying Pharaoh's order. They get called, and Pharaoh says, Why are you not killing the Egyptian babies? And they come up with this story about these women are incredible. We're on the way there, and they were already given birth, and we don't know where the babies are. I mean, these women are just incredible. And the text, the, Moses says that the midwives feared God. And because they feared God, they were willing to disobey Pharaoh. The, the word carries this connotation of a fear, but it's a fear of a deity, uh, of a God that might be angry. Or... If I do this, I might upset him, so I'm not going to do this, in the case of the midwives. Uh, it, so they're afraid. And this fear of a deity, 
it, it makes them to start calling out, to cry out. Each one is crying out to his own God. They're crying out to someone who, who can't help them, who, who cannot help them in any way. Isaiah writes about this in, in Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. God talks to the prophet about the folly of idolatry, how, how men, they craft these idols, and they make these faces, and, and they have these eyes, but these eyes they can't see, and they draw these pretty little mouths, but these mouths cannot speak to them, and, and they have these ears carved, but the ears can't hear them. It's just the folly, the folly that they have of going after an idol. What help is it going to be? Well, these idols represent a, a reality. Not Obviously, the idol itself is not going to do it. A, a reality that, that maybe there is a God out there that can help them. None of those things can help them. And the third action that they start to do is that they start throwing the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea. Now, the situation has to get very, 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 very uh, dangerous to be doing this, right? They don't get paid for just doing the trip. They get paid for delivering the goods. So they're getting rid of their paycheck with each thing as they're throwing, but they're trying to lighten the ship so it can be floating on top. In, in a way, uh, I don't know if you like to mark your Bible up, but the same word that the, is used in verse 4, where God hurtled this great wind is the same word used here of the cargo, that the sailors threw the cargo. It's the same word. And in a way, they, they are acting more like God than Jonah is. God throws down the wind. They throw over cargo. I think it was Augustine that said uh, that um, the godly, to, to be godly is to act like God. God hurled a storm down the sailors old cargo. Now, the, the narrator, he's focused first on God, then he goes to the sailors, and, and then right there in the middle of, of verse 5, there's that but Jonah, and, and this, this word, it, it, it's really interesting because it, it, it has a stop, a, a kind of just a, a stop that, that, that makes the reader really pay attention. The sentence structure changes again, and it, it just makes the reader stop and, and analyze because you have to decide what you're going to do with that conjunction. How, how are you supposed to understand that conjunction there? there? There's two ways to take it. There is one way that, but Jonah had gone uh, below into the hold. You, we could assume then that, uh, as it had said before, that when he paid and he went onto the ship, he went down into the ship, that maybe as the ship took off and started sailing, he didn't come back up. He went down into the ship, and he stayed into the ship. And, and if we were to understand that conjunction, but we would then say that Jonah is ignorant of the storm that's happening above. He is ignorant of, of the fact that they are scared and that they are crying out to their gods. He is ignorant of the fear that they have, that they are willing to throw the cargo over and lose finances because they are just so, so scared. Maybe he has an ignorance problem. But there's another way to take this conjunction. And that is not a previous action, but a congruent action. A congruent action is that while they are doing these things, while they are afraid, 
while they are calling out to their God, while they are throwing things overboard, he goes down deeper into the ship. And the implication there is different. It's not that he's ignorant. It's just he does not care. He has no compassion at all for what they're going through. He doesn't. If we think about missions, and we try to apply this to missions just very quickly, maybe there's someone here today that would say, the rest of the world is just like here. You cross this street, there's a church. You cross down here, there's a church. You go further down, there's another church. And the rest of the world just has this uh, uh, plethora of, of options to go to church. That would be that would be quite naive, wouldn't it? The fact of the matter is that there is places where there is no gospel witness. There's no scriptures translated. There's nothing. And the question is, what were, what were we going to do? Maybe we should bunker down more like he does. What does he do? He, he goes down into the ship. And then he laid down and fallen asleep. It's an it's a, uh, interesting verb. It's a reflexive verb. It's a, it, it gives the idea, not that he fell asleep as like when you're traveling all night and you're just so tired and you want to stay awake and you, want, you really want to stay awake, but your eyes just close. It, that's not the sense of this word here. It's a reflexive meaning he put himself to sleep. He grabbed his teddy bear. He grabbed his blanket. He put his, his pillow just right. He, he curled up his leg just like he likes it. He put his binky in and he put himself to sleep while people were crying out to their gods. And you see the lack of compassion that he has. He bunkered down even more. Now here's the fourth observation. Jonah's disobedience endangered the sailors. Now, you might want to run ahead in your narrative. Don't run ahead in your narrative. Let's just make it go. God has a plan for the sailors. I understand that. But as it is, as it's narrated at this point, Jonah has endangered, in his selfish pursuit, endangered the sailors. And that's what disobedience does. Many times we think that if I am disobedient to the Lord, it only affects me. If I don't want to pursue the Lord, that's just on me. But no, it's not like that at all. It's like a sin that, it's like the sin when you grab a rock and you're going to throw it into a lake, a lake that is totally calm. You grab that rock and you throw it in and you start seeing the ripples. There's no way for you to say, I want the ripples only to go two feet. <laughs> Once the rock is thrown, the ripples just keep on expanding, expanding, expanding. Where, who, who is his sin going to affect? Just him? No. It's endangering the sailors. The fifth observation is that God's actions make men fear, except the hard-hearted. Now, it's not that God cannot make Jonah fear. He could. But in a natural reaction, the hard-hearted individual will just bunker down even more. Given the opportunity to repent and to seek the Lord, they won't do it. They'll continue 
distancing themselves from God. They'll keep on pushing him away. They'll keep on disobeying. The sixth observation is that the sailors act like God, but Jonah acts like cargo. The sailors act like God, but Jonah acts like cargo. There they, God throws down the wind. The, the sailors throw over their stuff. What's Jonah doing? He's, he's sleeping. He's sleeping. He's like another piece of cargo there on the ship. He has no compassion towards Nineveh. He has no compassion for the people. Even though God calls it a great city, he doesn't care. The ship, the cargo, the sailors, Jonah just doesn't care about it. All he cares about is himself. Now we'll look at our last verse here, and uh, we'll have to move very quickly. So the captain approached him. The, the, the shift goes from the Lord to the sailors to Jonah. Now it moves over to the, uh, the captain. And this captain here, we're not told how he finds Jonah. I don't know if he's down in the ship trying to decide what, he, what to throw out. Throw that out. Throw that out. And all of a sudden he finds Jonah there, curled up, blanket, stuffed animal, binky, dead asleep. And, and, and his surprise, he, he, he finds him. And, he, and he's astounded. He says, how is it that you're sleeping? He gives two imperatives which in a way kind of mimic what God has told Jonah. He says, get up or arise. Call on your God. God told him to proclaim or cry out against Nineveh. He, he tells him, get up and call on your God. Perhaps, maybe, your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Maybe. The seventh observation is that Jonah has the correct answer to the captain's theological question. The seventh observation is Jonah has the correct answer to Jonah's, uh, to the captain's theological question. The captain is wondering, is Jonah's God compassionate? Does, does God know that they're in that plight? Is there anything he can do to stop what is going on? And the answer to those is, yes, God is compassionate. Not only is he compassionate, but he knows. It's one thing to be compassionate about something, but be ignorant of a situation that's going on, and you can't help because you just didn't know, but he's compassionate and he knows. And he can save them. Now, I don't want to get ahead in our narrative. The narrator is doing a good job to building suspense, and I don't want to ruin it for him. But we have to wonder, will Jonah correct his theology? Will, will, will Jonah stop thinking about himself to be able to tell him that God is compassionate? That, that God does know, and not only that he knows, but he can do something to stop the problem. Will he, will he interact? But will he correct the theology? And furthermore, let's just take it to us now. There's a people with, with a lot of hurt, and they have, a, they have a theological question. Now, they're not going to put it like this. They're, they're not. 
They're going to have it in a different form, but it's the same one. Does God care? Does God know what's going on? Can God stop them from perishing? And, and we have the answer. But the question is, will we get the answer? Or will we rattle off something that we heard on TV or, or say something that we saw in a meme or, or, or direct them to somebody's Facebook video or something? We have the, the theological answer to the theological question that people are asking. The question is, will we give it to them? Now here's the last observation. Why did God send the storm? It's a, it's a question that we have to ask. Why did God send the storm? And in our part of this narrative, in this part of this narrative, that question is not answered yet. We don't know if his purpose to throw this wind is to kill Jonah. We don't know. We don't know yet. As the way this narrative has developed, we don't have an answer to that question. Some of you are going through storms in your own life. And you would really want to know why did God send that storm. But the fact is, is that you're in that part of the narrative where the narrator doesn't tell you why. What do you do? I mean, you look all nice and everything, but there's a storm raging inside you. There's a complication that's happening. There is something frustrating. There's something hurt. There's something going on. And you have a storm going on inside of you. And you wonder, why? Why is this happening? But you're in the part of the narrative that doesn't tell why. You're just left with the actions that are happening. What do you do in that situation? Well, you can't look to those who are around you. They're crying out to their own gods. They're not going to be very much help. You can't look to the ship you're on. The ship thinks it's about to be destroyed, too. It really has no hope. What do you do in this situation? We sing about it. What a friend we have in Jesus. You look and you cry out to God because God is the only one who is faithful who can save you. He's the only one that knows what you're going through. In fact, he's the only one with you in that valley and in that shadow. You be faithful to God even though you don't know why the storm is happening. Even though you can't understand what's going on, you continue being faithful to the Lord. Now what we've looked at today is that our disobedience affects many more people than us. Therefore, we must obey God to declare His mercy to the nations. That's what we've been looking at. Our disobedience affects many more people than us. It does. When we decide to disobey God in, in any of the things that He's commanded, it's not just us. It's those who are around us. Therefore, we must obey God and declare His mercy to the nations. God is compassionate. And even as Christ tarries and doesn't come back for His church. He's giving opportunity. Opportunities to share the gospel. Opportunities to tell people, look, He's compassionate. He, he'll accept you. Just believe in 
His Son, that He died in your place. At this moment, I'd like us to just bow our heads and meditate on this. We're about to go into our Lord's Supper time. And as we look at these observations, we see that the wind is obedient to God, but His prophet isn't. Father, I pray now as we consider this matter, maybe we've thought that our sins are, are just us, but really they have a big effect. Father, maybe we've tried to seek stability away from you, but as we get further and further away from you, there's only more instability and danger. I pray that we'll repent and come back to you. Father, as we move into this time of the Lord's Supper now, I pray that... Um, uh, you will be glorified in this as we remember what Christ did for us on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll turn in our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we've been given a, a symbol. A symbol represents something much greater than the symbol itself, Right? You see a, a caution sign. The caution is for something ahead that you need to be careful for. Here we have a symbol, and the symbol, even though it's um, so small, it's just a little piece of bread and a little bit of juice, it, it represents something much, much bigger. It, it represents how, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, in verses 16, is not the cup of the blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's a huge symbol. In, in taking of the cup and taking of the bread, it, it represents a reality that we are brought together in Christ. We're, we're not brought together uh, as Americans or Texans or, 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 or Baptist. It's so much bigger than that. It's brought together in Christ. Why? Because we came as sinners to Christ and accepted Him. Just as we, we partake and we eat something, we take it in and we take it for ourselves, that's what we've done with Christ. We've taken Him. I would ask uh, if uh, Rocky and Dave, if y'all could come up and uh, uh, we'll have you pray at a certain spot. Um, it says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup, I'm in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, in an unworthy manner shall be guilty. Therefore, we must examine ourselves. We invite anyone who has accepted Christ as their Savior and has had the opportunity to be baptized and been baptized to participate in the elements. But we always do it with a caution that we must examine ourselves. E examine that our walk with the Lord is correct. That there's not uh, unconfessed sins in our lives that, that we are actively pursuing and not wanting to turn away from. It says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which is also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Rocky, would you thank the Lord for that body that was given for us?
Heavenly Father, thank you for offering yourself for our sins. Thank you for dying on the cross, giving up your body, which bread represents. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open that plastic white part, and there you'll find the bread part. And it says, uh, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take. In verse 25, it says, In the same way he took the cup. The cup represents his blood, and we know that without the remission, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Uh, Dave, would you please thank the Lord for that blood that was shed on the cross for us? Thank you, dear Lord, for what you have done on the cross to shed your true holy blood. Only that blood that can cover our sins and allow us to come before you. We thank you and praise you. And we pray now that you would open up our hearts as we prepare this bread. It says, uh, if you would, just go ahead and open that plastic white part. And it says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in a symbolic fashion, we have just shared the gospel of our need for a Savior and the fact that we took him and were saved. Uh, we know from Matthew that when they got done, they sang a song. So lead us into that song. I'm so glad I 